Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Heart of Sports with Jason Springer and Jeff Cohen, powered by ELEC 825. We are thrilled to join you on WWDB 860 AM and 97.5 HD2, part of the Beasley Media Group, ready to help you move into the weekend, talking about all the news in the world of sports. Jeff, we got a packed show. Uh, before we get to our guests, uh, are you still frustrated by your experience the other night at the baseball game? Look, we have a lot of positive to talk about, but I'm just going to spend a couple seconds just asking the Phillies what they thought they were doing. If you go to a baseball game and it's raining before you get there and you know, as the Phillies, that they're going to continue to have rain, you at least tell the people there what's going to happen. One time at the right before the game started, they said, we're moving the game back. I think 35, 715 is what okay. that's what they had on TV. Okay. From the time they made that announcement a little before 640, when it was supposed to start, for the next two to two and a half hours, nothing, nothing except they were selling food and selling other concessions and not saying a word to anybody. And let's face it. The reason that teams do this is because they can continue to make money, even if the game is canceled. And so we finally decided to leave about five minutes before they actually called the game. So it, it, it's just, look, I, you can't control the weather, but you know what? While we were sitting there, we looked on our weather app and saw another band of rain coming. When the, when, when the tarp was on the field and the rain kind of stopped, nobody came out on the field. It was evident that nobody was going to come out on the field and there wasn't going to be a game, yet they didn't say anything. That's my problem is there was completely no communication. I was very surprised by what I saw on TV. I did not realize you were there when I texted you. I got the response. I so wish we had more time to talk about it, but we've well, got some I don't great think you interviews. could read that response either. <laughs> no, we've got some great interviews to get to. So let's do it. And let's bring on to the show, Arthur Smith, Emmy nominated television producer, creator of shows like American Ninja Warrior, Hell's Kitchen, a much more author of the new book, Reach Hard Lessons and Learn Truths from a Lifetime in Television. Arthur, congratulations on the book. Thanks for giving us some time. Oh, my pleasure. Looking forward to it, guys. You know, reading this book and prepping for it, um, you said the stories you selected aren't necessarily the biggest or funniest. They support the message of the book. So talk to us about the message you wanted to share and how you decided you wanted to tell it. Well, you know, um, I believe in the power of reach because uh, I think when you reach, you realize, uh, you find out what you're capable of. And when you reach, you realize the difference between a, a pipe dream and what you haven't dared to try just yet. So all of the stories that are selected talk about how to use the power of reach when you're over reaching um, and things like that. Um, yes, there are stories about uh, Magic Johnson and Donald Trump and Gretzky and Paul Allen and Dick Clark, Little Richard Simon, Cal, a bunch of people. And But all of them have this connection to what I call the power of rage. You know, I, I believe um, the more we try, the luckier we get. So um, I hope this book is uh, entertaining, but I really hope it's inspiring as well. You know, I, so growing up, you at a young age, you knew you wanted to get into television and you applied to be at the CBC, um, you knew what you wanted to do, but but they weren't really ready for you when you came <laughs> in. T talk about your start at the CBC 
and how you kind of talked yourself into a position that didn't really exist. Well, you know, the expression ignorance is bliss. Well, that was me really ignorant. I didn't understand how the business worked, uh, but I knew I wanted in. And, um, you know, um, you said I applied, you know, to CBC. Well, I actually stalked somebody. (laughs) You know, I actually waited outside. Uh, You could probably get arrested for what I did, you know, today. But I was actually waited outside someone's office who uh, went to my university that he went to the, you know, my university 25 years ago. And it was my one connection. I had no real connection to the entertainment business other than I wanted to work in it. Uh, I love sports and sports is my second love for television's my first. But at the time, you know, that's where I thought I would fit in. That's where I thought I would work. And I literally waited outside of uh, someone's office for five hours or so. Um, and uh, till he came out and um, I got him in the hallway and said, hey, can I have 10 minutes of your time? And he said, I'll give you five. And it turned out to be 90 minutes. And uh, then he began to tell me that, um, you know, I, he, well, he asked me, he actually asked me a question. He said, what, you know, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to be a producer. And he said, well, that's a good life goal. You know, what do you want to do now? And I said, well, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm ready to go. And he goes, well, you know, that ignorance, ignorance again. And he goes, that's, uh, enthusiasm. that's not the way, yeah, that's not the way it works. He said, you have to be a production assistant. And you got to work in local news. And then if you're lucky, you'll get the national news and be a production. And then if you're lucky, you'll get, become a production assistant network sports. And, and I said, well, how long does that take? And he goes, you want the fast track? And I go, sure. And he goes, five years. And I go, well, I'm not interested. Once again, ignorant, not knowing any better. And, uh, but I did enough in that meeting to get a meeting with his boss, who's the head of CBC sports. And yeah, the story is covered in the book and it's, it's, it's all kind of nuts. It's all kind of like, when I think back on it, I can't actually believe it happened to me. Um, and you know, six months after graduating, I was the replay director on hockey Day in Canada. For, and you guys know, um, hockey Day in Canada for a Canadian boy is like, ah, that's, that's Monday night football times 10. So years later, I'm doing the LA Olympics, my first time in LA. And then if things aren't crazy enough, they make me head of the sports division when I'm 28. And, um, anyhow, it's, it's, it's just, like I said, I, I, everything that's worked for me is when I put myself out there, when I wasn't afraid to take chances, you know, when I wasn't afraid to express my ideas, every time I walk into a meeting, I don't, you know, whether it was with Dick Clark, who ended up moving me to LA or whether it was that first meeting at CBC sports, I walked in there with actual ideas. I actually walked in like what my white paper, because I, you know, people say they have good ideas. So I said, you know what, I'll just try this. And, you know, and you know, the funny thing is when I had that big meeting with CBC, the second meeting with CBC, and here's a story that's not in the book, but there's a, when I had my second meeting at at CBC, um, you know, I had to impress these people and I was handing out these papers that I had written about, you know, what, what I would do with CBC sports. That's in the book. That part of the story is, but what's not in the book is when I became head of CBC sports, my first night I'm sitting in the, in the corner office and right away, I want to look into to everybody's personnel files. What do they make? What are, what, are, what are the complaints that have been filed? And I find my file. I found my file. And in it is like all the human resource, human resources, paperwork from years ago. And the papers that I handed out as that lunatic 22-year-old was in the file. And it was just, it was just, you know, it was kind of cool that it went full circle. And uh, so anyhow, you know, it's like, like I said, all of this came from extending myself and something happened to me. And we're not going to reveal it today, but something happened to me, Jay. And I appreciate you reading the book. And thank you, Jeff, for having me on. You know, something happened to me when I was nine years old. And I, when I retraced my steps, I believe that that changed my life. I grew up the shyest of all kids. My pa- 
I was the kid that my parents worried about. Was not, you know, we moved five miles away to another suburb and it took me weeks before I left the house. I mean, I had some real issues with that. But then something happened to me when I was nine that forced me to step out of my comfort zone. And and listen, when you're nine years old, you don't realize you know what's going on subconsciously, but it, it, it changed me. And then when I really reach, like I said, when I retrace my steps, I look back and I know from that moment when I was nine years old. So readers, you got to find out what happened to me. It's kind of well, crazy. Well, here, here's my curiosity about you going through your own personnel file and looking at the stuff that you had when you were 22. So the person yeah. that you are now and the person that you are when you read those files, what, do, what would you have thought if, if, if that 22 year old had come into your office? Well, um, listen, I'm, I'm, I believe in, um, passion and I believe in intensity. And when I see a young person come up, who's got, who's really going for it right away, I take notice. Um, the worst thing that someone could do when they come into my office is number one, like things that kill the deal right away is that if you don't know a lot about the company that you're applying to, that's, you know, that does it for me. And then I always appreciate someone who puts themselves out there, someone who's done their homework and who puts themselves out there because that, that tells me how passionate they are. They, and, um, and so, you know, it's one of the great things about doing the book and, and, um, is, is that I hope it inspires people to reach. And, and I, and I did it because every time I lecture, every time I go to universities and talk to 20 year olds, 20 something year olds, it always comes up this power of reach. Um, and, and I, I, you know, I, like I said, I really hope it, 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 it inspires people. Um, and um, yeah, I, it's funny, you know, one of the things about running a company like I do, which is for 23 years and, and being, you know, I was head of CBC Sports 35 years ago. So I've been in a position of leadership. Uh, I love the process of mentoring people. I love that. And, you know, it gives me such great joy when I look back at some of the people who started our, at our company as production assistants, who are executive producers, who started at our company as associate producers, who are running networks. And, um, you know, so that that was one of the prime motivators for me writing the book. I, I'm hoping that this book is 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 the beginning of a new chapter in my life where I spend more of my time um, mentoring and, and giving it back and paying it forward. And listen, I, I've done 200 shows for 50 networks in, in this 23-year-old company. And prior to that, thousands of hours of sports programming. And yes, I still love it, but I want to I want to shift the balance a little bit more and and spend more time, like I said, giving back. In fact, all of my proceeds from the book are going to the Reach Foundation. Uh, the Reach Foundation is a, a is a thing I set up, which gives money to half a dozen charities who uh, lift people up in some way so that, that they can reach in their own lives. You know, there's a lot to, to, to be learned from this book and from you. When you're when you're involved in being a producer, you have to make a lot of decisions and sometimes you have to take some risks. And sometimes those 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 stories are actually really good stories. Could you just tell us a little bit about the story of of, of the decision that you made related to Wayne Gretzky and what happened with with Mr. Cherry? <laughs> Well, me and me and Mr. Cherry, you know, I could I could write a book of my life. You know, me and Mr. Cherry could be a whole other book, and uh, I can tell you some stuff that's not in the book because um, it's crazy. Because I've almost suspended him. I actually suspended him once, but we got into a lot. Of, I was always like, "Please, Don, don't make me suspend you." Every time I suspend you, I like I'm, I'm going to be the most hated man in the country. Please don't do that. You're so beloved. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, when I was uh, I was doing the Summer Olympics in Korea and. Um, 
and um, you know, I knew they, they had told me I was going to be head of the sports division when I came back. And I saw, I was watching CNN in my hotel room in Seoul. And I saw that Gretzky got traded, you know, one of the biggest trades in hockey ever. And he got traded from the Edmonton Oilers to the Los Angeles Kings and Los Angeles Kings. And in Canada, I mean, you know, there was no, no bigger news story. So I, I, I call. I, I immediately went for my hockey schedule and saw that Edmonton was playing, or LA was playing in Edmonton. The first time that Wayne would return in another uniform to Edmonton in, um, you know, in October. And I called the head of CBC, uh, the head of the CBC, um, and I said, "Hey, listen, uh, we should be doing this game. Everyone's going to want to see what how the crowd reacts and everything else like that." And they said, great idea. Great idea. Um, you're, but by the way, you're not head of sports yet. And I go, I, I know, but I'm going to be when I get back. So can we just try this thing? And uh, and they said, um, well, let's see when it's on. And they go, well, it's on um, um, it's on a Wednesday night. Hockey Night in Canada, Saturday night. You know, we, we don't do games on Wednesday. And I, and I go, well, it's time to make an exception. We need to try this. And and they go, well, let's see what, what you're scheduled against. And I go, you're scheduled against the World Series. And I go, doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. This Wayne Gretzky in a regular season hockey game coming back to Edmonton is bigger than the World Series in Canada, right? And they said, hey, this is going to be your first big decision as the head of sports. I said, yes, because I started as head of sports on October 6th. So I go to tell Cherry <laughs> that we're doing this game. And he goes, I'm not going. And he says, I, I don't want to go. He goes, I hockey in case, you know, Don's a traditional hockey man. He's a purist. And, and, and also with the broadcast hockey night, Canada, Saturday night, eight o'clock. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going. Um, anyhow, he, he went <laughs> and, uh, but he wasn't happy. And, um, you know, in Ron McLean's book, Ron McLean and Don, Ron McLean is the co-host or the host. And Don is Don because there's no category to put Don in anyhow. Um, and it's in, it's in Ron's book that how, how much they didn't want to go to the game. And, uh, as it turned out, the game um, beat um, uh, the the game beat the World Series. So the the Gretzky game beat the World Series, uh, not by a lot, but just enough to to make it a good move. And I mean, what else was CBC going to put on up against the World Series anyhow? So, but the thing with Cherry, I'll just tell you one other quick story of, of something that's not in the book. So exclusive to the uh, the heart of sports, Philadelphia. <laughs> Here you go. Haven't told the story in years. So so okay. So here's what happened. So I was, you know, as head of sports, you know, that Gretzky game really worked, and I was trying to do more special edition games and double headers. Now people in Canada, like you know, it's they're still doing it. So whatever I did 35 years ago is still going on. There's double header. They've shifted hockey night in Canada to seven. 7, 730, you know, and so they can get the late games in. It's a whole change in schedule. But honestly, it was it was a fight. It was a fight with the owners of the teams. Anyhow, there was a game. I said, you know what? I want to try to do a Sunday afternoon game. I want the, the L.A. Kings were playing the Quebec Nordiques in um, and, and I and I went to Don. Because, you know, Don is this one of the, he's one of the big stars of the show. I said, Don, you got to go to Quebec. And he didn't love Quebec, that province. So um, <laughs> not as much as, as he disliked the, the, the Scandinavian and Russians, but that's a whole other thing. Right behind that, probably Quebec. So I said to Don, you're going to Quebec? And he goes, um, no. And once again, I said, Don, you have a contract. You need to go. And he went. And so I'm watching the game at home. The game, unfortunately, is not a very good game. It's a blowout, as a matter of fact. And I think the Kings were, I, I can't remember the exact score, but the Kings were up like six to one after the first period. Game's kind of over. And we go into the first intermission for Don Cherry's segment, which is called Coach's Corner. And, and he said, and he's talking, and Ron McLean goes, what do you think of the game? And Don Cherry says, 
this is what happens when Hockey Night in Canada is on a Sunday. And he moves into the camera and he goes, right, Arthur? And and I'm sitting at home with my wife. And 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 Ron McLean, you know, being the consummate professional, goes, You mean Ron? He goes, No, I mean Arthur. And he's like pointing his finger. I'm sitting there like my, my chest is like, like tightening up. Uh, you know, what do you do? What do you do? And I think that was the time he got suspended. I know it was once. So, um, but anyhow, um, but you know, he, he was, a, he, he was a lovely man, you know, of course, after he apologized and he says, I, you know, I just lost it and whatever. And I was just so upset that we had a lousy game on and I was in Quebec on a Sunday. And I said, a lot of people like to be in Quebec on a Sunday. What are you complaining about? Anyway, so. Yeah, but, but look, look at the bright side. There are people that believe the TV's talking to them. It was actually talking to you. <laughs> yeah. You know, and if people read the book, they can see about the first Gretzky game back, the exchange that you ended up having with him in the elevator, which we'll leave yeah. for the book. But I wanted to ask you, you you eventually, you say you shifted to non-scripted, but if I look back at what you were doing when you were covering the Olympics with Ben Johnson and Carl Lewis, you were doing non-scripted storytelling all the way back when you were covering sports. Can you talk about how that seems to have been the genesis for like, we like to find the story behind the sports. It seems like that's what you're always looking to do. And that paid off for you with Ben Johnson in the Olympics. Can you talk about that? Well, I'm, I'm always, you know, when I was a sports guy, I was kind of like an entertainment guy doing sports and I, and I love stories. And, you know, maybe it's because I grew up in a house filled with women with with uh, two sisters. And now I have two daughters and none of them who are sports fans. But I always was trying to reach out to them. And maybe maybe I'm just a big mushball because I just want I just want to connect, you know, people to the emotional side of sports and tell great stories. You know, sports was a great vehicle for that. I mean, I love doing the games. Of course, I love covering the games. But you know what? I really was more excited about doing the opens and doing the story behind what was going on. And that's what really excited me. And uh, that's. You know, um, you know, when I'm working in when I was working in sports, I missed um, I wanted to do entertainment programming. And then I went when I went into entertainment programming with Dick Clark, I missed doing sports. And then when I went back to sports at Fox Sports, where I was head of programming and production, you know, I missed entertainment. And, and that's why my company is has been great, because I have the ability to do everything. And, you know, the show that we do, American Ninja Warrior, is kind of like the blending of both of my worlds. And I mean, it's a it's a shock that we're in our 15th season of this obstacle course show. But um, but uh, but, you know, um, you know, listen, some I believe that, you know, storytelling is storytelling, whether you're working in sports and entertainment. And it's not a coincidence that a lot of the people who work at, at my company are ex Fox Sports alums. Because I like sports producers have to get the story in the moment and they have to react in the moment. You know, when you're when you're producing an entertainment program, you a lot of times you're creating the fire and then you're covering the fire. And and, and, and when you're in live sports, you know, you're just reacting to it. So um, anyhow, I, you know what? I completely forgot what your question is, but this is, uh, this I was, is I, it, it happens all the time. Uh, yeah. Jeff, Jeff doesn't listen to my questions. Here, so don't worry about it. You fit right in on the show. I, I was just sort of asking you, you approached that games where you were covering the yeah. Ben Johnson, Carl Lewis yeah. uh, competition in the story it was. And then eventually you got to tell a totally different story yeah. of Ben Johnson, which you all won awards for. Yeah. When did you know that the story that you had wasn't the story that it was going to be? Yeah. I mean, listen, it's all about understanding the audience. It's uh, it's something that I've always believed in. And I learned even more when I worked with Dick Clark about how he stayed connected to the whole country and not just 
what was going on in LA and what's going on in New York. And so I, I honestly felt that when Ben tested positive, um, we, which, you know, you know, you know, this Jason, it was, it was, I, I stopped covering the Olympics and fo- totally focused on the, the fallout of, of the Ben testing positive. And I, and I took a lot of crap from it in our control room with my colleagues. And they were saying, Arthur, you got to get back to covering the Olympics. And I said, no, 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 this is the story. And I said, you know, really shows about sports generally don't do as well as the sports themselves. You know, pregame shows, they do well, but they don't do as well as the game. You know, um, the game always is the thing. But in this case, the game, the games <laughs> weren't the thing. And, and like I said, said, everybody was, uh, you know, not everybody, but a lot of people were, were on me. And I, I just trusted my gut. And, you know, that night when Ben Johnson won the gold medal and beat Carl Lewis, um, it was the highest rated night in Canadian television history. And then three days later, Ben testing positive uh, beat it. And that became the highest rated night in, in Canadian television history. And that record held for a long time. And it was, it was broken in 2010 when, when Canada beat us in the gold medal game in hockey in the winter Olympics, uh, which I still think has the record, but I'm not, I'm not hundred percent sure, but I've, I've been living in the States for 30 years, but uh, anyhow, but I, but I know that like somebody, somebody had to tell me that the record was broken and I was records are meant to be broken. I was okay with it, especially because Canada won the gold medal, by the way, <laughs> I, I, I have, I have, Dual citizenship. I root for the USA in everything, in except everything, Canada, except hockey. hockey. There's <laughs> Canadians. That's all, that's all we got, man. That's all we got. We got hockey. Wait, wait, what about curling? We got <laughs> curling, but no one cares. <laughs> so, <laughs> so one of the questions that I had and that I always, you know, we've talked to other producers about before is the struggle of, yes, the, as you talked about before, the game itself is the story, but the storytelling has become a much larger part of of, of sports on TV than it used to be. I mean, you see things like 30 for 30 and, and, and those kinds of things all the time. Is, is there ever a struggle as a producer to say, I don't want to overwhelm the event with, with a backstory? Yes. Yes. And, and yes, there is, there is a chance you can, there's not a chance. It happens. It happens. You, you have, to, I mean, it's all about the pacing of the show. There's a little bit of a science behind that. Um, it's hard to define, you know, um, in a short conversation, but there, but, but, you're right. It, it, and, and, you know, there is a tendency sometimes for people to overproduce and, and please get on with the event. You're killing me, you know, like, like enough, enough. And I feel like, you know, not every store, not every Olympic package needs to be someone who's sick or overcome something. And you can, you can overwhelm an audience. It's something, listen, we face it on American Ninja Warrior all the time. There are times when we don't run packages on certain athletes because it's not warranted. And we feel like we can cover the story with a quick soundbite or just a quick setup. Um, and yeah, it's, it's really about pacing, pacing your show. You have to do enough, but you know, um, you're right, Jeff, uh, you know, you can, you can do too much. And so, um, it's something that we measure. It's something that we do research, you know, we do research on too, but you have to trust your gut. You have to trust your gut because a lot of times the, even the research, you know, the research sometimes says too many packages, too many profiles, which I never believe because, um, they're saying that, that, that moment that you saw was only made bigger because you knew something about that person, because you actually cared about them. I mean, there's no logical reason for an obstacle course show to be on prime time in NBC. Come on. There's, it, it just doesn't make any sense. And had we pitched it to NBC, it would never have been on. It was a, through a strange set of circumstances. Circumstances 
that we ended up on NBC. And it, it was just, honestly, it was a stroke of luck. Something, listen, I believe we make our good, we make our good fortune. Sometimes when you're reaching, good things happen. And, and that's exactly what happened with Ninja Warrior. I still can't believe we're on NBC and we've been nominated for seven, seven Emmy Awards, considering that the show was a, a little show on a cable network. And how, pr- um, how proud are you of, of trusting your gut to make that decision and where it ended up? Um, yeah, no, I'm proud. I'm proud. Sure. Of course I'm proud about it. You know, it's like. You actually you know, put more into that show, right? If I remember with the prep, uh, you wanted more from the, the network and you did more to make American Ninja Warrior sure. pop, correct? You did your own investing of that. Yeah. Well, I, be- I, I believed in it, I guess. Yes. Uh, yeah. We put our own money into it because we had one shot at being um, this trial it wasn't even really a trial. It was just an act of synergy for Comcat. American Ninja Warrior started on this network called G4. Network doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> and 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 uh, I was happy. I was happy doing that. Like, you know, to use a sports analogy, sometimes you, you have network home runs and sometimes you have singles on smaller networks. And I'm okay with it. It's part of the portfolio. I was happy to do the show on G4. I'm happy to, you know, uh, have that, ha- have another series. And, but while we were doing what I think it was our third season, Comcast buys NBC, Comcast owns E and uh, Comcast owns Philadelphia. No, 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 Comcast owns E. Comcast owns E. As someone who has my office across the street from the two huge buildings that they have, yeah, they do. There you go. We can see them out the window of the station. I know, I know where I'm talking to. Anyhow, Comcast owns E and G4, and um, and and so as an act of synergy, purely as an act of synergy, never ever expecting we're going to be on NBC. That's nuts. So we just said, please put this one episode of Ninja on, um, you know. Um, on, on NBC. And, you know, Jason, you correctly pointed out, we went to NBC and said, listen, we want to broaden the show out. We want to do more packages. We want to dress the show up. And, you know, we asked NBC for some money to, and they said, uh, no, it's fine. We'll just take the show. And like NBC was kind of writing this show off. Like it's a one-off. It's never going to be on our air again. And, and, and anyhow, we invested our own money and, and made the show a little, a little more special. And um, the show goes on, wins its time period. And then NBC says, let's do more. And then we're in our 15th season. Fast forward. Crazy, 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 crazy. You talk about following the research. I drive Jeff crazy with ratings. Uh, That's not his bag, but I am very fascinated by the changing media landscape. As somebody who in that 88 Olympics was taking VHS tapes out for people to run stories that now calls this the golden age of television with streaming and so many avenues and outlets. Can you talk about some of both the opportunities that are out there, but also the challenges for the media industry as people change the way they consume the product? Well, it's really hard to get noticed. It's really hard to have a big primetime network hit. Sports is the one thing that, you know, conquers all. But but in the general entertainment space, it's very, very difficult to um, to have a, a big broadcast network hit. You know, I'm grateful that, you know, we have Hells in its 22nd season and Ninja in its 15th and, and a bunch of other shows that are long running shows. Um, but I, I know it's possible to have a, I know, I certainly know it's possible to have a hit, a hit television show. I don't know how many shows that they're going to be out there that last that long, you know, that go that long anymore. I just, it's, it's very hard for me to see that, but I know it's possible. It's definitely possible to have a bigger network hit. However, I believe that you've got to really take risks and you've got to go very high concept, anything that's derivative or anything that feels like a hell's kitchen ripoff or a ninja ripoff or a bachelor ripoff or a survivor ripoff does not work. So stop doing that. 
That does not work. Everything that we're talking about with networks nowadays are things that are very different than what's on the air. Just like Hell's Kitchen was. 2004, no successful network food shows on television. No one knows who Gordon Ramsay was. And it was a big gamble. The show sat on the shelf for six months until we asked, begged, to get, to get it on the air. Ninja Warrior, well, you know the story. Never, There has never been an obstacle course show in prime time. So I believe that the next great idea is coming from something like that on a broadcast. Listen, Mass Singer, not our show, big risk, it worked, you know? And, you know, as far as streaming goes, there's a ton of opportunities for us as producers. That's the good news is that, you know, there are years when certain certain genres or when I when I think back on the past, I should say, but um, like 10 years ago, you know, this game shows are in or documentaries are in and, you know, genres come and go. Now everything's in. Everything's in. So you just got to find a place, you know, where to put it. And uh, and that's exciting. And we love working. You know, we love working with everybody. You know, I do the floors lava with Netflix and, you know, I have a, pr- a project coming up with Roku on uh, with the WWE, uh, which is kind of like a hard knocks of the WWE, hard knocks like the HBO show in terms of style. Jason Jason is going to want you back on to talk about that. Jeff, I didn't ask him, okay, (laughs) but one of his biggest success stories of American Ninja Warrior, Casey Canizero, is now one of their stars on Monday Night Raw. And so I didn't go there, Jeff, but I could have. So, Arthur, I spared Jeff for that. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, I'm, Casey changed the sport of Ninja. You know, she just changed at that moment when she goes up the, the warped wall, all five feet of her 98 pounds. No woman had ever climbed the warped wall on American Ninja Warrior, but no one under five, six had ever climbed the warm wall. Warp, warp and wall. or woman. Man or woman. So it was just, it was just insane. And she changed it. You know, women enrollment went up 30 to 40% the next year and our ratings went up. And, and, and because all of a sudden this little show that was starting to work on NBC, you know, she was on the Today Show and people were saying, what is this thing? And now, you know, it's so funny. You know, we came from a male network, NBC, when they first heard about this active synergy was like, you know, this is a guy show and it's not, it's a family show. Kids watch the show. You know, it's so funny to me. Um, when I say funny, I mean, funny, exciting to me <laughs> that Ninja is now, it's now a sport that kids now, I hear this all the time. It goes, I'm, I'm, I don't play soccer. I do Ninja. I go, are you kidding me? I mean, the Ninja gyms that are all over the country and, and, you know, Ninja birthday parties and there's Ninja coaches, like there's baseball coaches. That's it's, what my six-year-old wants to do. He wants me to find him a Ninja class to go I, and be in. I love that. <laughs> so I, look, we, we really appreciate you giving us a little bit of your time to tell your story. Before you go, though, we always talk to to people in sports about how they use their platforms to, to better the communities they're in. And you're doing that through the Reach Foundation. Can you tell us a little bit about the Reach Foundation before you go? Yeah, I mean, essentially, um, you know, like I said, I started it when, uh, you know, I never did this book to make money. I did this book to get the message out there and to inspire people. And, you know, with that in mind, I said, you know what, I'm going to set up a foundation. And I, you know, the advance, you know, you know, when you're an author, you get an advance. I was lucky to get an advance on the book. And immediately I took the advance and put it into the foundation foundation. And hopefully if the book does well enough and people buy it, then we'll get some more money and that'll all go into the foundation. It'll probably become my family foundation because um, that's the way I see it going. And uh, But essentially, um, the, the foundation gives money to um, half a dozen or so charities all, all of who lift people up in some way so that they can reach in their own life. Um, and um, yeah, and that's it. I mean, you know, one of the great gifts 
happened to me. And I, I, you know, I appreciate you letting me on, letting me on and, and, and tell and sharing this story, you know, before the, before the book had come out, which was last week, um, a couple of months earlier, I did the audio book. And so I'm sitting there doing the audio book and, and it's, you know, it's, it's four days, it's seven hours a day. And the one person who has no choice to, to hear your book is the audio engineer. Everybody listening today and you guys, you have a choice. You could buy the book. You could not buy the book. Um, but the audio engineer, he has no choice. It's his job to sit there and listen to the book. And every day I go in there and the guy's, you know, doesn't say much. He's, you know, you're popping your peas. Or you stand a little closer to the mic. You stand far away from your mic. And I'm, go, I'm doing my thing. He goes up for lunch. I go up for lunch. We don't go out together. It's okay. He's doing his job. And, and I, you know, at the end of the session, I, I'm, I'm packing up my stuff and he, he comes over to me and he goes, you changed my life. And I go, what are you talking about? And, and he goes, I realized I wasn't reaching enough. I was so inspired by your book that, that I've decided I'm changing the course of direction of what I'm doing with my life. And he, he goes, I, 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 I just want to do more and, and listening to you, you know, and it goes on and it goes on and on and on. And, I, I was kind of overwhelmed and, you know, I hugged the guy, maybe, maybe a little bit too forward, but I hugged him <laughs> because I was like, so like, I was so like, wow, that's amazing. What a blessing. And honestly, guys, you know, and I may have said this before, I don't know, cause I'm rambling, but this is what I want to do with this chapter of my life. This is where, you know, this is what I want to do. And so the book, I hope, hopefully it inspires people, you know, and, and, um, Hey, listen, if you use the book as a doorstop, you're still helping charity. Come on, man. There so, you go. Uh, That's the pitch. <laughs> Help charity. Make my book a doorstop. The book is reach hard lessons and learn truths from a lifetime in television. Arthur Smith continued success. And thanks so much for giving us the time to hear all about it. Well, thank you guys for letting me ramble and having me on. I appreciate you. Operating engineers are the men and women that move mountains. And the Engineers Labor Employer Cooperative, ELEC, puts them to work. They create opportunities for the men, women, and union signatory contractors of Local 825, repaving our roads, keeping our homes bright and warm, and even building our favorite team stadium. We understand infrastructure. That's why ELEC and Local 825 are ready to get to work. All right. We are blessed to be joined by Luis De Silva, Jr. Uh, Luis, you are a producer, author, actor, and former streetball legend. Luis, thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me, guys. All right. So I, I got to ask the first question. As, as, as a kid who grew up in Jersey City, I got to ask the guy from Elizabeth, how do you get into cars? Right. I know. Tell me about it. Uh, I know I, there's, there's many friends that we could probably share that still don't have uh, a, a license also. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you know, sports and cars, I think work in tandem, especially in the city environments we grew up in, you kind of identify yourself with, with cars, uh, you know, growing up in the inner city and it's, uh, it's more of a, uh, a way of uh, expressing yourself. They're very similar to some of the basketball dribbling style I've done on, on the court. So, you know, life's part of expression, especially growing up in the inner city and that kind of resonated into my later years. And in Hollywood, you know, you talk about basketball, you made a name for yourself as tricks on the court. Uh, talk to us about walking into an open Nike audition that you took where you were just a talented high school basketball player. And all of a sudden coming out, you're an international star. 
Yeah, you know, um, there was a uh, street ball, you know, during the N1 era, a uh, gentleman by the name of main event Wally Dixon, who was also a standout um, in New Jersey, went to Rutgers. He's from Linden. And I guess uh, throughout the years of him watching me in the street ball courts, he had calls and he was already a contractual N1 guy. I was like, hey, you know, I heard there's this Nike audition. I can't go, but, you know, go in there. Um, it's, you know, the Upper East Side and say Rupert sent you. And to this day, guys, I have no, no lie. Because I just did a podcast for main event himself. I still don't know who the hell this Rupert guy is. But <laughs> long and behold, long and behold, I just said Rupert sent me. Didn't have to sign in. I walk in and I'm in this high school gym, you know, this PS number, whatever, in New York City. They go by PS numbers. And uh, I'm sitting there. My dad came with me. I'm 18 years old. And there's streetball legends that I heard knew about, you know, the Pee Wee Kirklands and, you know, the um, Speedy Williams and all these other legends and Boger Smith and everybody who's a somebody who grew up in the streetball circuit and some NBA players having an open call and they give you a number and they give you like 30 seconds to do some demonstrations of what you could do with a fold-out chair. Some guys are dribbling, some guys are, you know, maybe dunking over the chair or just, you know, dancing expression because this is for an ad that later I realized this ad was, now I'm going to speak my age, was the launch of the Nike basketball domain. So now we're talking, you know, this is only 2001, but how fast, you know, the web era has developed in 22 years. So it was the launch of the Nike basketball.com. And I only knew that a couple of years after we did the Nike freestyle. So listen, I was nervous. I was 18 years old, sweaty palms. The room started to clear out as people were doing their demonstration. They put their coat on and all right, boys, I'll see you later. It was pretty much empty. I was the very last one. And I got on and I was just kind of duplicating everything I learned and been practicing in the backyard, which to me seemed normal because it's obvious just trying to do creative new things. Well, one Jay-Z song came on and then there was another Jay-Z song. So they pretty much didn't tell me to stop and just kept rolling the camera. Um, and I was probably there for about five or six minutes going, running through like complete songs and still doing like basketball, dribbling and, you know, tricks that I've learned. And uh, um, I turned back around when I stopped and the room filled back up. Before you know it, everybody's walking to my dad thinking he's my agent. And what part of New York are you from? And they're like, no, we're from Jersey. And, you know, 20 some years ago before the Kyrie, there wasn't a lot of guys who could dribble like that from Jersey, let alone white. Right. So um, it was a big deal. And um, I was working a part-time job, uh, an athlete's foot, I think Woodbridge Mall. The next day, you know, it was a cool day. I was like, man, I, you know, I think I did a good job, but I didn't think nothing of it. Went back to my job. My phone rings a job and uh, they were like, yeah, we booked you for this commercial. Can you take, and I hung up the phone thinking it's my friend called my job, making a prank. They called back and like, did we have a, you know, interruption? And this is like the work phone, right? Nobody really had cell phones. It's 2001. So um, at least I didn't. And um, they were like, yeah, we, uh, we, we want you to come to Astoria, Queens and shoot this ad. So I'm like, this is for real. So I uh, took the information down, you know, I wrote it down and went to my boss's office. It's like, yo, can I have this day off? I have to shoot. Uh, never forget this day because it's a day that kind of sticks with me. March 16, 2001 was the day that they were going to shoot this ad in Astoria, Queens. It's the day that kind of changed my life. So my boss is like, oh no, we need you this day. So uh, I kind of told him I'm quitting. So I quit on the spot and um, get to the spot. You know, there's Paul Pierce, there's Shamika Hosclaw, there's Aaron Davis, there's Jay Jason Williams, there's Vince Carter. I mean, all the guys that were the LeBrons of that time. Um, Lamar Odom. I mean, this is the Lamar Odom when he was, you know, Darius Miles. I mean, we're going back where this was, you know, these were the guys in the NBA at the time. And uh, man, they came to me and shook my hand and introduced themselves to me like I didn't already know who they were, but I guess they were in so awe what I was doing. And I was just an 18 year old kid, just uh, uh, happy if I got two seconds on camera. Well, you know, a month later, the commercial 
commercial comes out and I got a complete solo commercial to myself. So to this to this day, it's still out there. And, you know, I, I saw you post on Instagram this week, dribbled out my hood and landed on silver screen. Is it true right. that director Justin Lin, some other actors in the Fast series recognize you from your days as tricks on the court? Yes. Um, I mean, you guys are um, you guys did your research. Um, <laughs> but yes. Yeah, so don't, I, don't I, tell I, anyone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So so I got to. So now all right, fast forward, you know, I signed a Nike endorsement deal, made the cover of Time magazine. Um, 2001 it was the best commercial of the year. So they gave me the cover of the magazine. We did a tour with Vince Carter, who was, you know, promoting this Nike basketball and then uh, landed on the, the front page of the Wall Street Journal. Guess I revenued Nike 300 and plus million dollars in 30 days and never suited up for an NBA game. So that was like a topic of discussion for quite some time. So that rolled into a multi-year endorsement deal. And, you know, 18 year old kid um, who NBA players and people in the street probably recognize more than some players at that time because street ball was, you know, NBA was kind of getting lost in the sauce for lack of better words. You know, this is after Michael Jordan and they're trying to find, and right before Kobe, trying to find that next star to really take this off. And, um, you know, Nike was struggling as well, not having that, that brand ambassador. So, um, you know, getting with the, the traveling with, with, with Nike and, you know, getting all the free gear and getting paid to do gigs is a dream come true. And I was like, okay, what's my next step? You know, I played professional show basketball with the Harlem Wizards and I worked out with the Harlem Globetrotters and they gave me a guaranteed contract. And I'm like, man, but my passion desire of entertaining in front of the camera was like, was cool. Like I, it was like a high, right? Like watching other people enjoy what I'm doing. So I kind of got a little bit more invested in taking the arts a little bit more seriously. In 2007, I got a break with um, Neil Jordan um, and we did the brave one. I was the, um, you know, Jody Foster was the vigilante in the film and I was probably the protagonist um, and got pretty much like a co-star with Terrence Howard and became the number one in the box office. And then from there, it kind of translated into other projects until 2009 comes around and I see they're looking for a guy who speaks Portuguese and it's a Porsche driver for a Fast and Furious. And at that point, Fast and Furious was, I think it was on Fast and Furious 3, shooting 4, and they were preparing for 5. So um, I called my my agent at the time. I was like, you know, I want to read for this. So I was living in Charlotte and uh, they're like, okay, so make your tape. So I called a buddy of mine who had a camera and he recorded me and I, I kind of reenact this scene where I thought in my head and I got to tell you guys, the biggest movie was the easiest audition. They called me like an hour later and I booked it on tape and um, two months later I was filming in Atlanta and I walk in on set and it's so surreal, right? You're watching TV characters and the cars all staged in the tuner scene and you're just like, man, is this really happening? And Justin Lin comes running up. He's from Taiwan and, you know, the, one of the Time magazines I was in the cover was for the Taiwanese time for students. So I spent a lot of time in Taipei and, uh, you know, he was he was a fan of my work and introduced me to Vin and that's how I got introduced to, to, to Paul Walker, God rest his soul, and everybody on the cast and, you know, he was super excited because he's a, he's a real basketball junkie. So um, it's cool to know, you know, 12 years later, he wrote me in again in Diago and Fast 10. So it's uh, it's really awesome. It really is. It's like it's a community, man. It's uh, if any time play a sport, especially being in the inner city or people who, who love the game of basketball or any other sport, it's like a fraternity. You know, it's a brotherhood. Well, you know, we went fast and furious past your basketball career. You tried out for the Harlem Globetrotters. What was it yes. like trying out and, and being told that, that you could be a Harlem Globetrotter? You know, it was, it was, it was surreal. I think it was fulfilling for me um, growing up. And I think, you know, as a kid playing basketball during 16, 17, you know, NBA, everyone didn't want to play in the NBA, but I got to tell you, man, the, the N1 really had a lot of kids wanting to play N1 before the NBA. It was 
was just a really it was a hype. It really was. And and it took the world by storm. And I think Nike did a fabulous job paralleling that with the Nike freestyle. Um, so, you know, I knew that, you know, being a Harlem Globetrotter, it's like the godfathers of doing the tricks. And all I wanted to do, my vision was to, you know, kind of create different type of tricks that hasn't been seen before and kind of have my own identity in what I was doing. So going to the training camp in the Houston Rockets and working out with the guys and I had a great workout. Um, you know, one of those days you're making all your shots, trick, you know, we were playing real pickup and it's like, I'm coming through the lane, you know, bouncing the ball off my head, off the glass, three guys coming, try to block it. So it was like a, a real Jason Williams, so to speak, white chocolate showboat type of day, but everything was falling the way it needed to. So I uh, got a guaranteed contract. It was so fulfilling, but it's the bittersweet because um, I didn't take the contract. And the reason being is they wanted to own their likeness to my name. Like they do with a lot of the talent that comes on board. And at that point, guys, I had too much vested and goals and, and, and things I wanted to do with, you know, my name. And if I did that, it would have been completely, um, the property would have been owned to the Harlem Globetrotter. So um, unfortunately, I had to kind of like walk away and, you know, tears for a couple of weeks. And I was concerned if I made the right decision. And, you know, thankfully I did, because if not, there wouldn't be in, you know, 80 plus films, um, you know, wow. 15, 20 years later. So, you know, it, it hurts, you know, at times. And sometimes I look back and be like, you know, just the what ifs, but things happen for a reason. And here we are. But, you know, there isn't a lot of people that can actually play real basketball in Hollywood. So I like to I always like to, you know, it's my, you know, you got they, you can win an Oscar, but I guarantee you I'll beat you one on one on a pickup. You so, seem to get <laughs> the best of all worlds. You get the movies, you get the basketball. And as a car guy in the last few weeks alone, you've been at the Indy 500 Formula One event and yeah. you were the fastest seat in sports at the Chevy Detroit Grand Prix. Yes. What's it like for a car guy to get that experience on the track there with those racers? You know, I got to tell you, it's, uh, you know, being being stapled as a car guy and seeing top speeds at 220 and being in a car going that fast on these turns and feeling the G, you know, a G force or two. I got to tell you, it's a, it's, a, it's an exhilarating um, excitement, but it's scary. It's scary. And you'll know when it starts to, you know, you hear your heart, you know, you're, you're in a fire suit. All that sounds cool until you're putting it on. And then the ski mask comes on. And then once that ski mask comes on, that helmet follows and then everything becomes silent. And then it's just you, your heartbeat, the adrenaline, you know, they get you in this. And I'm talking about carbon fiber, your shoulder to shoulder, as tight as you come, you know, your knees up and they got this little hand grip where you're holding on where the steering wheel is. And, you know, it's all carbon fiber. So like they're, they're, and there's no room. So they put the neck brace. I mean, it's like claust- you're claustrophobic. It feels like, all right, guys, like you guys all been in New York City elevators, right? So like those elevators was like one or two people and it's like the door closes at your nose like that. And it's just like, you know, filling the top speed. You have to really like dig deep and say to myself, okay, it's either two things going to happen. I'm going to get, you know, claustrophobic and start to panic or you have to tune in and just really own this, right? So like the mind has to really, it's, it's challenging because, it, you know, we're talking about fast speeds and adrenaline and excitement. But after I got out of that thing, you know, you got the, you know, the, the noodle legs, your palms are sweaty, your heart's pumping, but I'm an adrenaline junkie. And I was like, uh, I got to do this again. So, um, 
having the opportunity to do it in in Detroit and to lead all the cars in the fastest seat in sport. You know, that first time was a little bit more uh, scary, uh, but in a good way, right? It was like exciting. And the second time I knew what to expect. But one thing I didn't expect, how bumpy the streets of Detroit are because we're running through the road streets and uh, potholes going that fast. And, you know, <laughs> there's no luxurious, there's no luxurious seats in those race cars, at least in the back of where I was at. And uh, listen, I'm 5'11", 160, so I- I'm not packing too much junk back there. My little tail was bouncing up and down. It was painful, but fun. You know, and, and so now you're going to be hanging this weekend with some of the legends of 24 Hours Le Mans. Those guys sit in the car for hours and hours and yeah. hours racing around and having to do that. What's it like for you now to be the Grand Marshal of the 6th Annual Philadelphia Concourse de Elegance and to hang with, with not only those legends of racing, but somebody like Dick Vermeer? Well, you know, it's um, funny you said that because, uh, you know, at Indy, I got a chance to meet, you know, a good buddy of mine, Adam Driver, again, on project. And he's from Indiana and he was a grand marshal of Indianapolis 500 this past year. So I was like, man, wouldn't that be cool if they do something like in my home city where I'm at and do something there? I was like, yeah, you never know. So it was like a thought. And after that, it was just like, you know, moved on with the day. Well, long and behold, you know, three and a half weeks later, um, able to become a grand marshal at this awesome event. Not to mention, you know, it's, uh, it's hosted by the 75th anniversary and Porsche's their car and you know my yeah, history with Porsche on these blockbusters I'm the only character from the franchise that has the same car besides you know Dominic Toretto in two separate installments so um you know it's really owning in for the whole Porsche thing and uh I'm digging it I'm excited I don't know uh, I have an idea what to expect because um, I don't know if you guys ever been to Indy 500 or heard about it but there's that basement that no one goes into your phone's got to be in your pocket and it's like the very first car every ever made you know every championship car you know uh from the mario andretti's on i mean it's just like it's a museum so now being able to enjoy in these festivities with you know the cars for kids and chop and the museum and then seeing some of the legends i mean i I, was real conversations to have right i was on three laps what is that six minutes and i was in a panic let alone 24 hours so and that's that's the next thing i want to do not actually racing but engaging and like being in one of those locations where the cars are passing through um the le mans that's awesome you know we have been lucky to to be a part of this the last couple years and, and you're gonna love what you get to see in terms of the classic cars but the thing that's great about it is what it goes for and you've got a close connection to chop with your eight-year-old daughter can you talk about what it means not only to support the cars but to support cool cars for kids and chop and and the work that they do here in the community well yeah i mean you know um when this was presented to me they said you know children's hospital of philadelphia and i my wife's a, uh, a nurse um and her mom's you know a director of nurses so the name shop comes up a lot and and i know their you know lineage and and what they stand for and how reputable they are not only in the region but in the nation right so um you know i have a eight-year-old daughter and i have a six-month-year-old son who literally just went for his checkup today at the children's hospital of philadelphia but just a pediatrics division and guys you know if you're in you know marlton or Voorhees or anywhere in south jersey or outside the surrounding philadelphia how highly dense and populate it with CHOP. And I love, you know, what they're doing for, you know, the, the kids that are, are not as privileged. Um, and and, and there's, a, there's a lot of them that are just, you know, and families have to deal with, you know, these these, these circumstances and, and it's a change of life. And, you know, um, 
cars for kids. I think that's a cool slogan. I think it's awesome. And um, this was brought to me new and I want to completely continue on adding on to this because, you know, listen, um, we're fortunate. We wake up every day healthy and um, uh, I feel like it's our duty to inspire and help, you know, put smiles in everybody else's faces, um, especially kids. You know, kids are pure. Kids are, are you know, I'm, I'm spiritual guy. So, you know, I don't want to get into a whole religion theme here, but I'm Roman Catholic and I'm, I'm a practicing Catholic. So it's uh, it's important to do things like this that have meaning. And I want to continue on doing so. I supported a lot with St. Jude and now being in Philadelphia and knowing that they have these cool events here. Uh, clearly, it's going to be something I'm going to continue on engaging and um, put my support and effort in any way I can. You know, um, as we get older in life, you know, <clears throat> you know, you start to say to yourself the fulfillment of having cars. You know, I've had the plethora of them and it's fun when you get them out of the lot and it's exciting. But that's still that spark and joy of when I, you know, when I buy somebody a car, when I buy my mom a car, when I buy my sister a car, you know, I'm doing something to help someone else. You know, it's uh, it's that Christmas joy tickle in your gut feeling uh, that's way more fulfilling than my own personal needs and desires. And I just that's where I am in life right now. I just feel like, you know, the, the, the joy and fulfillment of, you know, helping others is way more fulfilling than self so, you know, normally we'd ask somebody like you, what's there left to do for a guy who's a street ball legend, had the career that you had in that that realm, all of a sudden becomes a big star. You're in one of the biggest movies in Hollywood this year. And I would ask you normally what's next, but you're also an author. Like, mm-hmm. so of, of all the stuff that you've done, how do you get into being an author of children's books? Well, you know, I just, uh, I, I guess the inspiration was, of course, being a father um, and, when I knew I was having my daughter, I, you know, I spent a lot of time in the air flying and I used that as a motivation to try to try to create, try to do something that's fun. You know, um, um, you know, uh, I, uh, spent a lot of time writing. I think most of my writing comes from when I'm taking these long travel trips and it was more of a hobby and having fun with it. And, um, I'm owning it. It's, uh, it's exciting. Um, you know, I, I would, I would use that loosely. I think some authors, spend a lot more time in their writing lately. I haven't had the time to spend much time, but there's a, there's always a lot of things you can do next. I think, you know, um, preparing, trying to write again and, uh, continuing these book series for children. And, um, I think this weekend would be an optimum time to, you know, collaborate with, you know, cars for kids and, you know, express my desire to, you know, offer these to, you know, chop, et cetera. I think, you know, the world of expectation and what we can try to achieve collectively um, for the community is endless. And especially in Philadelphia, man, in the surrounding areas, I think this is a city that definitely needs it. You know, we, they, it has the title of, you know, the city of brotherly love and brotherhood, but, you know, there's like many other inner cities, it, it, it has its own struggles. And um, I think there need to be more positive um, influencers that are still active in the city. And when I say that, I say that loosely. You know, I know there's a ton of celebrities that come are from Philadelphia, but really don't remain in the area. You know, so I would like to be somebody who's a little bit more vocal because I call Philadelphia home now. Right. So this is, this is my home. So, um, and be a lot more vocal and doing things in the community and, you know, on the, on a grassroots level. And I think that would build the community and 
make this place a better place day by day. And that's all we can ask for. All right, Luis, before we let you go and see you this weekend, one more question that people want to know. Did you get to pick so your you guys car? Are coming. Huh? So Jess, you guys will be there. Yay. All right. Jess. So, so, so here's the question. Did you get to pick your car? For, for, okay. for Fast and the Furious. <laughs> so I get to one and, uh, you know, it's an eight-hour flight. I left Voorhees, right? Car picked me up at my house. I'm headed to the airport and, you know, direct flight to London. And I'm saying to myself the whole flight, now just what if, what if my next car is a Porsche again? And right away my mind's like, man, there's no way I shouldn't be the ambassador for Porsche. I mean, this will kind of like, I would think this would put me in conversations <laughs> to solidify it. So I'm having Always internal, <laughs> Yeah, I'm like having these internal conversations. Like it wouldn't be far-fetched. And I'm getting there. So I don't know what car is there. It's not written in the original script. So I'm like, what car is it? Sure enough, long and behold, I get to my trailer. My door knocked. It's Vin Diesel. Hey, buddy, glad to have you here. You know, we brought you back. You know, I, I was fighting with Universal. I told them we need you in this scene because the, the best tuner scene in the franchise was the one from Fast Five. You're a fan favorite and you bring a different type of flair and energy. And I need this. This is like a trailer moment. And you keep repeating the trailer moment. But I'm like, you know, Vin Diesel's blowing wind. He says it to everybody, but he really was on all the trailers. I was a part of the trailer. He's like, I need you to bring me something that's a trailer moment. I'm, I'm really want to use your scene for a trailer. I mean, this freaking thing was on. Super Bowl. It was on, you know, the NBA playoffs, the finals. I mean, if you go right now on Instagram and you tap Fast X, I mean, there's a plethora. I mean, they've spent at least $150 million in marketing. So he wasn't lying. I guess he had him and Universal knew exactly where they were going with this. But I'm just like, yeah, 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 this is all cool. It was like, well, can you take me to the car? So we walk and this is like, you know, before the sets there. Sure enough, Lizard Green 997 GT3. And I'm like, and I'm saying, keys, like this is a, uh, uh, everything I said in my mind is happening. Like blue Porsche, green Porsche, there has to be something we do. It's, it's amazing how that worked out for you. We're so thrilled for the success that you've had. Uh, can't wait for Jeff to see you. I'm going to try and get there Saturday. Jeff will make sure to see you there. And we, we hope we get to talk to you more as, as you continue to go forward and, and have great success. No, listen, guys, you guys are, you guys are awesome. You, I love what you guys are doing. And you're, you guys are local and whatever you guys need from me. And thank you for Richard, what you're doing for the culture and cars. And, you know, I think, you know, I want to end it on this note. I think it's very important, especially for, you know, the Gen Z's, right? You know, no one really wants to drive. And, you know, I just feel cars are, you know, cars are cool. Cars, there's, 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 it's part of America. It really is. I mean, it's part of our culture. It's part of our heritage. And I would like to see the younger generation. And that's what I'm thriving for, getting the younger generation to, you know, be the enthusiast and keep this alive, you know? And I think, I think our franchise with Fast and Furious did a did a relatively good job in, in in building the culture of cars because car shows really became prominent since the franchise has been in existence since 2001. I mean, you can look at any city and every weekend and there's a car show going somewhere. And it wasn't the narrative 30 years ago. So, you know, I love it. And I just wanted to see it continue on growing and well, we'll, uh, look forward to see you guys this weekend. We'll keep the conversation going. Can't wait to have you join us again for it. Thanks so much for the time, man. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much for joining us this week. Make sure to join us next Friday night to help you start your weekend in style. Have a great one. We'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye.